You're listening to the O'Reilly Radar Podcast. I'm your host, Jen Webb. This week, O'Reilly's Mike Hendrickson sits down with database pioneer and 2014 recipient of the ACM Touring Award, Michael Stonebreaker. They have a wide-ranging conversation about the future of data science, why he thinks MapReduce is basically dead, and the importance and difficulty of curation. Enjoy the show. Hi, this is Mike Hendrickson from O'Reilly Media. I'm talking with Michael Stonebreaker today. Michael, how you doing? Doing good, Mike. So most recently, you've, you've had a career that spanned maybe four decades or longer, and mostly in the database world. And most recently, you won the Turing Award, the ACM Turing Award. Can you talk a little bit about what that means to win that award? Sure, Mike. Uh, that's essentially every research computer scientist's ultimate dream. It's, it's, you know, there's no Nobel Prize in computer science, and this is basically the Nobel Prize in computer science. So I'm absolutely thrilled and, and astonished, and, and I mean, it's just, when I was notified, you know, I, I teared up because that's, I mean, it's been, it's been a fantasy for quite a while. But you didn't specifically set out to win it. It was bestowed upon you because of all the great things you've done. Is that the way it works? And so in some of the great things you've done, you've had a career mostly in databases and relational technologies. And you've also taught many great students, both at Berkeley and MIT. Can you talk a little bit about why you've given yourself to teaching? Uh, sure. The, uh, I don't do very well having a boss. <laughs> and, and so as a faculty member, you basically, you have no boss to speak of. As long as you show up and teach your classes, you know, no one can tell you what to wear, what to work on. And so I love, I love the freedom. Uh, and I love the ability to say whatever I want. You know that there's, you know that if if you work for a company, then you have to toe the company line, and which means you get a boss. So I don't do well with a boss. Okay, but so in in a way, the students are the boss to some degree. I mean, it's not the inmates running the asylum, but um, the students that you teach are you know kind of holding you accountable or you're holding them accountable or how does that work with the, in in academia uh well i mean as long as you teach acceptably well i mean let's say the students evaluate all all faculty and all courses and as long as you teach acceptably well you know the universities i've been at you know have basically promoted you based on research productivity as long as you do acceptably well te you know teaching students and as I say I I love to teach I mean it, it's it's a lot of fun so in on your Wikipedia page there there's a list of some of your past students that have gone on and been successful in their career including Mike Olson most recently of Cloudera fame and Hadoop and, and whatnot so what is it about particular students that you can see the diamond in the rough or the potential in different students? What is it do you think contributes to that diamond? Well, I think, I mean, I think Mike Olson is a good example of, of someone. I mean, Mike, Mike is an excellent technical salesperson, so he's got an outgoing personality. I mean, he, he's very smart, but everybody is very smart. And so I think ha having, having a Having a salesy personality is a huge advantage. Being able to write is a huge advantage. Most of the students that I interact with, you know, have never been taught how to do technical writing, and that that's 
crucially important. And I think the third thing, which is really, really a challenge, is to have good research taste. You know, in other words, to figure out what's worth working on and what's not worth working on, or, or when the rubber meets the road and not the sky. And that good, re good taste in problems, I think, I, I don't know how you develop that, but people who have it, you know, do very, very well. A good filter. So a good filter, yeah. yeah. It's very good, well, well put. Yeah, so, you know, you, you've had a career, you know, and most recently, um, the world has changed in data and databases and the way, way things are working. Um, and we've come a long way from Codden date years and years and years ago and the relational theory and where we are now. But not everything has changed completely. So in, in a way, one size doesn't fit all, but it seems like today's movement, we're trying to cram everything into a one size fits all data world. Do you, can you talk a little bit about that? Is that an approach that you see happening or one that's dangerous or potentially fraught? Sure, I mean, I think if you rewind I mean, I have plenty of gray hair, so I remember the 70s and the 80s. There was really only one database market, which was business data processing. And I think the requirements of business data processing are, are fairly straightforward, and relational database systems basically did that. And I think starting in the, in the 90s, data warehouses came on the scene, and, you know, most notably in the mid-90s, the big retail players started to create you know sales face customer facing data historical data and the and then sort of since 2000 you know everybody needs a database system I mean everybody's realized that they have a big data problem and all the internet all the internet giants have a big data problem all the science guys have a big data problem and and so so now it's everybody who's got a big data problem and one side, the business data processing solution simply doesn't fit all of these other marketplaces. So in the data warehouse world, column stores are going to completely take over. I mean, they're in the process of, of completely replacing row stores. And, you know, in 10 years, there will be no row stores in the data warehouse world. And in other, you know, in other markets, you know, I think, you know, there's a possibility that the science guys will focus on array stores. It's not clear what what the, the best solution is. The social media guys have graph data, and it's not clear what the right solution to graph data is. And then I think at the low end, there's been a ton of NoSQL offerings that have, you know, semi-structured data. I think in the case of semi-structured data, that will converge with structured data. Uh, so I don't see that as sort of a, a separate market over time. Uh, so I think one size is not going to fit all ever. The only question is how many different architectures are there going to be and how many different query languages are there going to be? And I think the, you know, I can ask you a hypothetical question, which is suppose you work for Walmart and Walmart has a item level data warehouse, every time an item goes under a wand anywhere in the Walmart system, you get a, a record added to a data warehouse in Bentonville, Arkansas, and they're keeping two or three year history at the item level. So suppose, so there are three major snowstorms in the Northeast this, this way. Only, only three, huh? <laughs> well, you live here. So yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know. 
And so suppose you're suppose you're the Walmart buyer charged with with provisioning stores around snowstorms. So you want to know what sold in the week before the snowstorm, what sold in the week after the snowstorm, and compare Massachusetts store sales with, say, Maryland's store sales. So I'll give you a huge chart of numbers which you can pour over, and you can run your favorite Viz tool on all those numbers. So that's that's solution one. Solution two is you ask a data science guy to build you a predictive model that will predict what will sell around snowstorms. So would you rather have a predictive model or a big table of numbers? You know, if you're the CFO, you want the predictive model. And so it's all going to move to data science as soon as enough data scientists get trained by our universities to do this stuff. It's fairly clear to me that you're probably not going to retread a business analyst to be a data scientist because you've got to know statistics, you've got to know machine learning, you've got to know what regression means, what what naive Bayes means, what K nearest neighbor means. I mean, it's, it's, it's all statistics. All of that stuff turns out to be defined on arrays. It's not defined on tables. And so the tools of future uh, data scientists are going to be array-based tools. Those may live on top of relational database systems. They may live on top of an array database system or I say perhaps something else. It's completely open. So let's let's go back quite a ways. When SQL was first being introduced, it was kind of a, a little bit of a radical new approach to accessing data and getting data out of storage. Do you think today's NoSQL is as radical as SQL was years ago? I'd have to, so let's let's start at the beginning. So Ted Cott wrote his pioneering paper in 1970, and so he invented. He invented two query languages. One was called data language alpha, and the other was called the relational algebra. And Ted was a mathematician. I mean, he used to work on cellular automata. So his query languages no mere mortal could understand. So there were two projects in the 70s, System R from IBM and Ingress that I, I wrote. And both of us looked at Ted's languages and said, you can't possibly, that, that, that has to go. So the system R guys use SQL. Uh, we used a language called Quell. Uh, Chris Date, who you mentioned earlier, wrote a 60-page paper in the mid-'80s saying SQL is a mess and Quell is a much, much better, much cleaner language. But whatever, the, the commercial marketplace doesn't necessarily pay attention to cleanliness. But anyway, high-level languages started with Tetcod. Now, and I think over the ensuing 40 years, high-level languages are just plain a good idea. Uh, since I have a bunch of gray hair, I remember system programmers saying, you've got to code an IBM assembler because if you can't control the registers, there's no way to go fast. And we now see what a ridiculous statement that, that was. You know, never bet against the compiler. Uh, I think the two other points to make about the NoSQL guys. Uh, their big advantage is, is semi-structured data. And semi-structured data, a lot of people have semi-structured data. Most, you know, the NoSQL guys pretty much are betting on JSON, which is a representation for semi-structured data. Uh, the relational guys are all 
supporting JSON, you know, either now or soon. So I think supporting semi-structured data is important. That was a good idea from the NoSQL guys. The relational guys are all taking it and running with it. Uh, the third thing is that the NoSQL guys all say, give up ACID, or give up transactions in favor of you know, either well, in favor of both no transactions and something called eventual consistency. I think that's a terrible idea that they will quickly be weaned off of. So I think the two markets are going to converge. I think the NoSQL guys had a good idea, semi-structured data. They had two bad ideas, low-level languages and no transactions. And so I think they will add that stuff and the, the two markets are basically going to converge. Kind of blend. Yeah. Well, they, I mean, I think if we come back in 10 years, they will be indistinguishable. Okay, so an, another thing that seems to be um, growing more and more is the, the ability to handle unstructured data and the tools that support handling unstructured data. So companies like Tamer, is that how they were founded around that ability to adapt and handle the variety, the unstructured variety of data? Is that... Okay, so when you, when you say unstructured data, you mean one of two things. You either mean text or you mean semi-structured data. Mostly the NoSQL guys are talking about semi-structured data. When you say unstructured data, I think text. Uh, and I think what's gonna happen with text is that, I mean, I'm working with one of the three-letter agencies and their point of view on text is they are running an application-specific parser over the text because they're interested in terrorist events and they're not interested in the meaning of God or whether there's a traffic jam on Alewife Brook Parkway. So they're looking for, for specific Although things. terrorist events might be associated with the meaning of God, <laughs> unfortunately. But I think, so, so they're looking, so every, everybody who has, who's trying to get meaning out of text, you know, has an application specific parser because they're not interested in general natural language processing. They're interested in specific kinds of things. So they're all turning that into semi-structured data. So the real problem is on semi-structured data. Text is converted to semi-structured data. Tamer is happy to ingest semi-structured data or structured data. And their point of view is that in front of them, there's an application-specific parser that takes text as a source and turns it into semi-structured data. Okay, and so do you see this as a growing area of, of the database technology world? I mean, are there technologies that are more suited or industries that are more suited for that? For semi-structured data? I think it's, you know, relational database systems are doing just fine on that. NoSQL is doing just fine on that. I think it's, if you're happy with JSON, which seems, I don't hear many objections to JSON, uh, then I, that, I mean, I think, you know, in general, what semi-structured data means is so, so this is a data, this is a data record for Mike Stonebreaker. So I have, there are a thousand possible attributes and I have values for five of them. So my hobbies are in this record and, and then the data is the hobbies I'm engaging in and maybe my salary is there. So attribute name, attribute value pairs, a collection of them along with the key is pretty much what semi-structured data means. I, and, you know, most any database system is happy to ingest that stuff. So I don't see that being a hard problem. Okay, so 
I, a problem that I'm curious about, if it's hard or not, and I think it, it might be, is the data curation part. So what is a person who can curate data well, or what is a system that can curate data well? I mean, can you talk a little bit about that? Because to me, that seems like the a little bit of a wild card going forward that we might have all the science behind relational and the theories of data and all that, but the curation part seems more like an art. Is that fair to say? So curation is the 800-pound gorilla in the corner because you can solve your volume problem with money. You can solve your velocity problem with money. Curation is just plain hard. So historically, here was the traditional solution, which is the extract, transform, and load vendors you know, people like Informatica or IBM's Information Integrator. Uh, Talent is another, is an open source system that does this. So uh, the ETL guys say, here's, here's the way to do data curation. So if you have a data source you want to ingest, you send a programmer out to find the data set, find the owner of the data set, figure out how it's formatted, write and ingest uh, routine that will, you know, suck it out of wherever it is. And then you've got to clean it, transform it, and then you've got to load it into your data warehouse. Now, when you say the, the other thing that the ETL guys assume is that you've built the global schema in advance. So the, so, so the applic application programmer knows what he's trying to get to. So he goes out, finds the source, and, and does you know, this pipeline of processing steps. And the result is you know, a semantically consistent data warehouse. So that technology works for 10 data sources. I'll give you 20. You, know, you twist my arm hard, I'll give you 30. But it doesn't work for 500. So if you need to ingest and curate a few data sources, go get an ETL product and do it on a very you know, horizontally contained subset of your enterprise data because people tried in the, in the late 90s, every single big enterprise tried to build an enterprise-wide global schema and they all failed. You put five guys on it and they went off for two years and tried to build corporate-wide global schema. And uh, by the time they finished, it was completely obsolete because the business is dynamic. And, uh, and so they, they all just totally failed. So getting a global schema for any significant subset of an enterprise is just a hopeless undertaking. So if you do it for a narrowly focused set of data, like your sales data, your customer-facing data, I, mean, I think it, it works reasonably well. Although all the initial data warehouse projects back in the 90s were a factor of two or three late and a factor of two or three over budget because the curation problems were just hard. So you can use the traditional technology for a few data sources, but it's not going to work on hundreds of data sources. It's not going to work on 325 procurement systems. So how do you so, figure that out though? Is that a human human thing that figures that out? So, so, if, so, you, it, it, so you've got to be able to scale. Every enterprise wants to scale. So I'll just give you a couple of random examples. The uh, Groupon, the guys with the Daily Deal, are building a, you know, a planet-wide database of small, small businesses, basically their potential customers. 
they're doing this by curating 10,000 data sources. So they want to do it at scale 10,000. Uh, Novartis, which is you know here in, here in Cambridge, uh, has uh, about 10,000 lab, basically bench scientists, biologists, and chemists who are doing wet stuff and writing down experimental results in what amounts to a lab, you know, a electronic lab notebook. Novartis wants to put together 10,000 lab notebooks. So they want to do it at scale 10,000. So if you want to do it at scale hundreds to thousands to tens of thousands, you cannot do it by manually sending a programmer out to look. You've got to pick the low-hanging fruit automatically. Otherwise, you'll never get there. It's just too expensive. So any product that wants to do it at scale has got to apply machine learning and statistics to make the easy decisions automatically. The second thing it has to do is that, go back to ETL, you send a programmer out to understand the data source. So in the case of Novartis, some of the data they have is genomic data. So your programmer sees an ICU-50 and an ICE-50. Those are genetic terms. He has no clue whether they're the same thing or different things. So you're asking him to clean data where he has no clue what the data means. So the cleaning has to be done by you know, what we would call the business owner, somebody who understands the data and, and not by an IT guy. Right, exactly. So you need domain knowledge to, to do the cleaning. So if you ask a human, you don't want to ask the IT programmer who belongs to, you know, the IT department. You, you've got to ask a domain expert. So make the low hang, pick the low-hanging fruit automatically, and when you can't do that, ask a domain expert not who, who invariably is not a programmer. So a ask a human ex domain expert. So those are the two things you've got to be able to do to get stuff done at scale. So that's, those are two of the tenets of the Tamer system, uh, which is completely oriented toward doing data curation at scale. So let's transition a little bit to, and we've been talking about this, but we're now on the road today and so many organizations are on this Hadoop um, bandwagon, and yet you've said in the past that only a small percentage of big data problems are fit for a Hadoop solution. Is that still? Let's, let's, let's be a out? little careful here. Okay. So, you know, up until two years ago, the Hadoop, what Hadoop meant was the open source version of MapReduce, which was written by Yahoo. Yep. So Hadoop sits on top of a file system called HDFS, and there's Hadoop, which is MapReduce. So we'll just call it MapReduce just to avoid ambiguity. And on top of MapReduce, there are bunches of tools like Hive and Pig. And so uh, we'll get to Spark in a minute. So the Hadoop stack used to be a bunch of tools. Uh, in the middle was MapReduce, and on the bottom was HDFS. So a bunch of us wrote a paper in 2009 saying MapReduce is a lousy interface, and that, and so and people, and it, it it's it's the right thing to do in a very small percentage of the of the market. The ensuing few years has completely validated that statement. So uh, you mentioned Spark. 80% of the Spark market is SQL. 
And if you, you mentioned Mike Olson earlier, if you buy him a beer, he will admit that MapReduce is sort of applies to only 5% of the, of the market, which is what we've all claimed. And that the real answer is that uh, it's SQL market. So Cloudera has recent, well, about a year ago, uh, they released you know, a SQL database system called Impala. Impala is not built on MapReduce. No one with database expertise would ever make MapReduce an internal interface inside a SQL, parallel SQL DBMS. I've written a parallel SQL DBMS called Vertica. Uh, others have written parallel database systems. None of them use MapReduce as an internal interface because that isn't a good engineering decision. So the Cloudera guys who built Impala understood all this and they're not using MapReduce. So MapReduce is basically, in my opinion, dead. Uh, how do I know that for sure? Well, uh, Google wrote MapReduce in 2005, 2004, and it was originally written to deal with their crawl, uh, their internet crawl for, for keyword search. So Google abandoned MapReduce for that, pro for that project about four or five years ago. So it was purpose-built for a purpose, and Google decided it didn't work for the purpose for which it was built. And they've moved to Big Table. They've moved their crawl to Big Table. Uh, recently, Google has further announced that they really don't have any use for MapReduce internally. So here we have a situation where Google wrote something in 2000, you know, 10 years ago, abandoned it five years ago. And now all of a sudden we have all of this hype about what a great idea it is. And so uh, we're like lemmings that, you know, what Google does must be, must be a good idea. So uh, it seems to me we're about five years from figuring out what Google figured out five years ago, which is MapReduce has basically no application. So in my opinion, uh, the Hadoop market is a SQL market. And by the way, a dirty little secret is that HDFS, you know, MapReduce is, is a terrible interface. HDFS, you know, is a pig. Uh, and uh, in fact, Impala drills through HDFS to the underlying Linux files, files, reads and writes directly local files. Because the last thing any database system ever wants is a file system that doesn't guarantee the data is on your node, but is somewhere across the network. So pure HDFS, you know, no database system wants it because of the way it, it's architected. No database system wants, uh, wants non, every database system wants ACID. And the last thing you want is replicas that are not consistent. So nobody wants HDFS facilities and everybody is bypassing them. So uh, the lower level interface is cancerous. The middle level interface is gone and it's a SQL market. So I see that completely converging with the data warehouse market and may the best systems win. And Spark is entirely a SQL market and it's basically up against main memory SQL engines. May the best systems win. And I think Spark has the problem that Spark SQL is built on top of MapReduce. What's happening is that the Hadoop stack and applicability is in, is in turmoil. So you say, well, 
why don't I ingest all my data into a data lake? I'll figure out which data is actually valuable and then I'll load that into a real DBMS. So that's a popular tactic. The uh, first thing is you've left out an important step called curate the data, which you, you know, which which we talked about because yeah. you, you get a swamp, you don't get a lake. And, and I have no problem with HDFS being this holding tank for stuff while you figure out w what it is that's valuable. So I have no problem with it being a queue repository. Uh, but I think you can put all that stuff on your SAN. You can put, I mean, it, that's, that's just you know, a holding tank and ascribing a lot of value to a holding tank, I think is, I mean, I don't see it. So I, I have no problem with it being a holding tank. I have no problem with running ETL. In other words, the transformation piece of ETL, you've got sources and destinations and that has to live somewhere. So I have no problem with doing ETL in this, you know, file system world. So I mean, I think all, that's fine, but to me, that doesn't command big amounts of money because you can, that's it's just a file system. You need a file system with a lot of space. And and that 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 doesn't that doesn't resonate with me as costing a lot of money. So what's up for you in the next five to ten years? You know, I know you've you've had a distinguished career, you've won a Turing Award, you've done some fabulous things, you've taught great students. What's in store for Michael Stonebreaker in the next five to ten years? Well the first thing to realize is that there, there, there is no, there's nothing I can do that will, that will get me any more recognition than a Turing Award. So, so, uh, so there, there's no, there's no career objective I can possibly have that, that will make any sense. Uh, right now, uh, you know, for the last decade or so, I've always been worried, you know, am I going to have any more good ideas? And they keep coming. And so I'm not sure exactly what the next one will be. And, uh, but I think if, if I have another good idea, then I will investigate it and I will commercialize it like in the past. Uh, the thing that's a little scary is that I'm 71 and I don't know of any 80 year old, uh, you know, active professionals. Uh, so anyway, I'm, I'm gonna play out the current game as long as I'm as long as I'm competent. And when I'm not confident anymore, then I will figure out something else to do. I think, you know, one of the things I've toyed with is uh, I see startups making the same mistakes over and over and over again. And so trying to help other people with startups and trying to, because I, you know, I think after nine startups, I actually have a little bit of experience in this area. And that plays to your teaching and mentoring role so, as well. So, so I, may, yeah. I may turn into a mentor. I can certainly turn into a venture capitalist if I wanted to. So anyway, I, I've certainly got options, and I, but, right, but uh, those are plan B if I can't continue doing what I'm doing. Okay. Well, congratulations again on your Turing. A fabulous achievement, and we look forward to uh, more great things from you in the future. Sounds good. Thank, Thank you, Mike. 
Thank you for joining us. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe through Stitcher, TuneIn, iTunes, or SoundCloud so you never miss an episode. Mm-hmm.